What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Spring is coming, the clocks get set back this weekend, and we're ready to be sprung from our COVID-imposed exile. Some of us are restless or bored or lonely. Some of us are fatigued or frustrated or fragmented or worn out. But our mindset is not our fate. We're in control of it. Here to talk about that and optimism and her road back to self-sufficiency following a car versus train accident that required the amputation of two legs and one arm is Linda K. Olson, author of Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking my life back, published by She Writes Press. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much, Diane. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, I feel like we're lucky to have you. You're lucky to be alive. I know this, the events took place some time ago. Um, and to set the stage for our listeners, Linda Olson and her husband, Dave Hodgkins, were young doctors whose story had all the makings of a fairy tale. But then, while they were vacationing in Germany, a train hit their van, shattering their lives and Linda's body. When Linda saw Dave for the first time after losing her right arm and both of her legs, she told him she would understand if he left. His response, I didn't marry you. I didn't marry your arms or your legs. If you can do it, I can do it. Linda, aside from um, deploying a great amount of humor in this book, uh, it is a serious subject. It is a subject that we want to cut to the chase and get right into. But you do call yourself Linda with no legs. Um, how else would you describe yourself uh, now as a human being? You know, every day, I, if you ask me that question each day, I would probably have a different answer. Um, today, I think I would describe myself as a happy, optimistic person who has been about as lucky as anybody in the world. And I know people find that often a little strange because when they look at me, I have only one arm. But when they look at me, they usually don't notice that right away because of who we all are and how we interact with each other. So um, today it would be optimistic and happy. (laughs) Well, I'm glad of that. I mean, I'm sure there are days that are other than that. Um, You say that attitude um, after the crash was the only thing that you could control. So often we think that we can't control our attitude, that we're bound to it, that the feelings that we have control us even. Um, You exercised a great deal of self-control during the process of your rehabilitation and healing alongside of your husband and Dave, the only two people um, in the accident of several others who were injured. I wondered about this idea of controlling your attitude. Did that exist before your accident? Was it strengthened? What were the before and after traits there? 
You know, I think I grew up with um, the feeling that I could do anything. And I think that a lot of that came from my family. I had a loving mother and father. I was the oldest of three children. Um, I think they pretty much supported all three of us and told us that we could do anything that we wanted to. And I think it came through in the long run as a confidence builder. Now, <laughs> I I make it sound easy. As a female, most of us know that women in general uh, tend to look at ourselves and we think that we're not as good as other people. And I had my share, fair share of that, and you would laugh. I had curly brown hair and freckles, and I'm light-skinned, and I lived in Southern California, so I always thought that I didn't have the looks that I wanted. But I think as the years went on, I had enough other positive feedback things, and I'm, I'm not an ugly person, I, I not don't mean to say that, but, you know, the insecurities of being a teenage girl and growing up, I had the typical ones, but I also had... Um, Enough positive feedback. I was a piano player. I was uh, an athlete. Um, I did well in school. So I think I always felt like if I tried hard enough that I would be able to succeed. Now, that doesn't mean that I always succeeded, but when I didn't succeed, I would stop and start over again. And I think it. by the time I was 29, which is how old I was when I had the accident, I'd had enough positive experiences to know that if I kept at something that I could usually make it work. And I think with my accident, um, the injury was physical. It wasn't a mental Mm -hmm. trauma. It was, in fact, I was very lucky. I ended up without having any evidence or any um, PTSD type experience. So I felt like it was something that if I worked hard enough physically, if I put enough sweat into it, that it would be successful. I didn't know how successful, but I would be able to make at least some degree of success. You were, you were curious about how far you might be able to go. Um, there are, there, <laughs> I think that curiosity bore you well. Um, there are photographs in the book of the uh, crash site. Um, the van is straddling the train tracks. The train is coming into the van. Um, people are looking under the car, um, which is where you were. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that um, when I look at this and I look at this sort of determination, I think that there was a whole lot of just somehow transcendent um, determination that went on, even though you quite plainly said to your husband, Dave, you can go. Like if you, you know, (laughs) I think, you know, what you were just saying about being a Southern California girl and, and the way that we all associate ourselves with our legginess, maybe with our Mm -hmm. arms, arms, Arms are so symbolic. They're the arms that you wrap mm-hmm. around someone. They're the arms that protect your children. They're, you didn't have children at this time. Um, you, 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 you know, but these arms and these legs, they had symbolic meaning in terms of your identity as a female. And then even without cute shoes, you managed to go on. I mean, it really, there, there are so many 
heartwarming moments. But one of them that I really latched on to was the idea that you didn't have both your arms. Your dominant arm was lost in the accident. But you you could protect when you ultimately, you and Dave decided to have children. You had both a boy and a girl, Tiffany and Brian. Mm-hmm. And you could nestle them in the the corner of your wheelchair so that up until the time they were three or four, Neither one had ever fallen out, um, and they were right there by your side. I wonder if some of the gifts weren't actually larger, and I'm not trying to diminish the, the power of the accident at all, but some of the strengths and some of the compensations were somehow even better, um, it seemed. You know, that's a question that I think many people that are disabled would give you the same answer I'm going to give, and that is... In the long run, many of us have had a much more exciting and um, wonderful life than we would have had without the accident. And it's funny that you focused on my legs. One of the things that my husband has told people over the years that, and I think we may have written it down somewhere, that he missed my what he called my beautiful legs and the fact that I had just run up and down a to the highest steeple in Europe in the city of Ulm just a few hours before. It's the one thing that he never, ever got over was the last thing I did with my beautiful legs was go up the tallest steeple in Europe. And he also felt like, uh, you know, he wouldn't feel that hug and I wouldn't be standing on his toes. So he focused very early on what wasn't going to be there, but he also focused really quickly on what was left, and that was the one-arm hug and my smile. So um, those were the things that went away quickly, but we had to put them behind us and just not think about them anymore. Um, And when you talk about my wheelchair, it was probably one of those wonderful things that most other people never have, and that is the closeness of my babies being, as I have told people, crammed into the corner of my wheelchair. If you can imagine somebody sitting, looking straight forward in a wheelchair, my right arm is missing. And so that little space back there between the backrest and the armrest of my wheelchair just cried out for something to be there. And that was where we put the kids. And from day one, I mean, as soon as I came home from the hospital, you could just cram them right down in there. And it was just tight enough that it supported her, their head when Tiffany was born, and um, all the way up until, like I said, three or four, of course, by then they were sitting on my lap, but it was my privilege to be able to go into the kitchen at, in the morning and put the kids in there and make breakfast, make coffee, and we could, you know, chatter to each other. Um, so it it kind of sufficed to make me feel not so bad as, well, I mean, say it the other way, the things that I had worried about that I couldn't do, like walking with my children in the park and holding their hand, um, showing them how to ride a bike, the things that we do that are physical, I was able to, you know, feel with them sitting next to me in that wheelchair. And um, it's funny because they never, and I think if you watch other adults or parents that are in wheelchairs and have children, you'll see the same thing. I have a a dear friend who is actually a woman with a quadruple amputee, and she uses hooks for her arms and hands. 
and her children are on her lap all the time. And they're sitting there being held by a mom who is a beautiful woman and has hooks for hands. So mm-hmm. I think our children, they don't know anything else. They think everybody probably uh, is sitting in a corner of a wheelchair like that. And it's, it's the love and the warmth that they feel that we all crave. So I was able to um, have that not knowing ahead of time that it was going to be there. So, yes, it was a wonderful, wonderful part of being disabled, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Um, yeah, on balance, I mean, there were just redemptive factors. I don't think you can really weigh it, you know, exact for exact. But, I, I you know, on balance, there were some, you know, contrary to being disabled, which is described most often as deficits, you started to look at the plus column. You started to list your strengths, I think, mentally. And that really helps because you can't focus on what's gone. Um, you created a memoir called Gone. But I think that, you know, the, the subtitle, A Memoir of Love, Body, and Taking My Life Back, also says it all in terms of what you were going to intend to focus on. I just wonder about the switchover between, you know, looking at yourself as a series of deficits as opposed to looking at yourself as a series of strengths. How long that process took? Is it even ongoing today? Yes. Um, I think that first day in the recovery area, um, because I was awake when the accident happened and I knew what had happened, I never lost consciousness, and when they pulled the, they kind of, when the train came to a stop and they backed it up, everybody got off the train, this was in Germany, and they pulled the van off of me, so I, I knew from the moment it happened that this was going to be my future, but I would always go to sleep at night and dream as an able-bodied person with all my legs and extremities, um, I still do that, and I'm now 41 years out, um, but not nearly as much. Many of my dreams now, I am now in a wheelchair or using prostheses or whatever. But at first, um, I kept thinking it would go away, and when I would wake up, it would come, my legs would be there. I did that for years. But I would just look down, and that's why my editor came up with the, or the publisher of the company came up with the title, Gone. She said, when I read that first chapter twice, you kept saying you would look down and your legs were gone. And I had to keep looking. I had to keep looking. And when I would close my eyes and think that they were still there, I would open them again to convince myself. And there's something interesting about having amputations. When I woke up the next morning and I was Lying on that bed in Salzburg, Austria, it felt like my legs and my arm were still with me. And they actually felt like my knees were bent, like I was sitting in a chair, Mm -hmm. and my feet were going through a hole in the mattress. And it was like I was sitting there, and I could feel the electrical current going through my arm and my legs. And I still feel that. I'm sitting here today, and I can still feel this very mild buzz feeling in my extremities. And I felt like over the years it's been kind of a a protective mechanism, I guess. And that is 
that even though they're gone, they feel like they are there. And that feeling allows me to go on through my daily business and not think about it. Um, clearly, they're not there. And when I have my prosthetic legs on, it looks like I have legs. In fact, they're so realistic looking that many of the people, well, several of the people that I've worked with over the years did not know that I was missing my legs because my fake legs look so real. But it's, um, it was just... Um, I, I, did, I, I often thought they would come back, but not mm-hmm. realistically. It was a wish. And then I would get over it and say, okay, that was enough of that, and now I'm going to go on to the next thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a, it's, it's, a, it's a weird feeling, and it never goes away. And it's um, your self-image, uh, your, your, self, your concept of yourself is with limbs, and it comes back in dreams, and, of course, there's the, the, the phantom limbs, um, you know, phenomenon that you, you know, felt pain in limbs uh, immediately mm. after. And perhaps even the idea that, you know, we are energy and that there is still an electrical charge through limbs that are uh, no longer there. Um, we have just a couple minutes till we take a commercial break, but um, I want to point out the cover art is by your daughter, Tiffany, is it not? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's the pair of prosthetic legs. Um, they're in a kind of swashbuckling um, position of, you know, kind of a jar. <laughs> and that, that, I think, is quite appropriate. Um, and your daughter, Tiffany, also carried you. Um, and she was quite proud, I think, at a certain point when she was around 10 or so, that she could carry you. Um, when yes. we come, when we, uh, we're going to, we're going to delve into this idea of carrying because there's something profoundly intimate about that, right? You're not often a mother who is carried by your child. That's quite inverse. Um, and then there's the carrying that Dave did with you on the hiking trails that you ultimately got back to your first love of nature. Mm-hmm. What's, it, what's it like to be carried? We've just got a minute, but tell us just what does that feel like? You know, to begin with, it's very demeaning. It's very, um, it was awful. <laughs> I did not like being dependent. I did not like someone having to do things for me. And it was scary that I would be that way the rest of my life. And it's probably what drove me so quickly within the first day or two to reach a point sometime in my life that I wouldn't have to be carried. So it was terrible, and it was also my impetus to work very hard. And Mm -hmm. then it had a lot of positive things after I became independent again. (laughs) That's a mouthful. Well, no, it's, it's, it's an incredible, like, you know, journey full circle I see also the photograph of you doing a one arm 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 lift you know lifting your entire torso so it's it's not surprising to me that you developed this resilience um and and I think that you know we're going to find out all about that how you actually completed your studies in radiology went into Mm -hmm. the field had a successful career um, and how all of this worked for you mentally, spiritually, um, and in your love relationship. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Linda K. Olson, author of the memoir, Gone.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Linda K. Olson, author of the memoir Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking my life back. Your husband, Dave, is also a doctor, as are you. Um, He did, I think, thank goodness, come out with that opening statement, I didn't marry you for your legs or your arms. I married you for you. I wonder, um, I think he, I think you reached down uh, to a place right up front, which I think probably saved the day. But also he was a doctor. So immediately he wanted to check you out <laughs> in the hospital room because he was in the hospital too in Salzburg where they flew you. Um, so we wanted to check you out. He wanted to know... You had a compression fracture in your spine on top of these amputations, and um, he wanted to understand whether your, you know, sensory um, functions um, were still intact, and and how did that go? <laughs> you know, I uh, I vividly remember this because we could go back and forth between being doctor and between being patient and between being husband and wife and. Uh, I guess it could have been a little schizophrenic if we had let it be, but again, it was probably both of us going back to what we could take control of. Um, uh, and he is a very black and white person and very driven. And I think he, number one, wanted to make sure for himself that I was intact and also to prove to me that I was not, that neurologically, I would, what was left was intact. And I remember him uh, doing, you know, the simple physio, uh, neurologic exam of just touching my skin on my legs in particular because that would be a level below uh, because of, this, of the fracture of my vertebral body that I was had sensory, I had sensation, I'm sorry, and that I could uh, differentiate between painful stimuli and not. And so he kind of pinched me to make sure that I could feel it you know, I had my eyes closed, so I couldn't tell what he was doing. And it was successful. And he said, yeah, I think your spine is going to be fine and you'll be able to move. And, you know, I've, I think to both of us, <laughs> your mind tries to find the most positive thing it can. And I think both of us decided really quickly 
that I was lucky that I wasn't paralyzed, that even though I didn't have extremities, I could move everything, I could feel everything, and other than just being tiny and having to figure out how to get around, everything else was going to function well. Um, so I think it was, it was a, uh, again, a take control type thing, find out the good news and ignore the bad news, which we couldn't do anything about what wasn't there, but we could take advantage of what was left and start working with it. So I think that's what that provided for us. So, And it led to funny business in the hospital, which I think to myself, <laughs> well, these people deserve a lot of credit. First, I, I, I do have to say it seemed that it was helpful that you were doctors, that you could go to a place where you you could, if you chose to, look at this um, situation in terms of functions, what was working, what wasn't working. And thank goodness that your sensory functions were working because you went on to become and re- re- remain a full-fledged woman, even though you had many... Um, you know, doubts about whether or not you could be that. You talk about how tiny you felt. You you were you felt like a baby again, that you had to go back and relearn everything. But there was this crew that came in, these friends and family that came to you when you're in the 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 intensive ward in Salzburg. I went online and looked at that hospital. I know Salzburg. You talk about how how beautiful um, it was to be there. Salzburg has a kind of magical quality as an old city with a kind of fortress above, and you gazed out at it. Um, And I wondered about this support of this family who were a bunch of comedians, ultimately. Um, (laughs) They gave you your first baby doll negligee, and they also did this inventory of you, um, your, your, your risk, risqueness, your, your sexual, your, you know, flirtatious, they ranked you on all of these things. I mean, what was the function of humor um, while oh, you were going through this? It was huge. And um, that was my reaction on the first day or two when people would come in to see us and they would just look down. They didn't know where to look. They would have tears in their eyes. They couldn't talk. And I realized quickly that it was my job to get them to laugh. And so it became, uh, as the days would go on, um, you run out of things to laugh about. So we started getting a little bit lewd. Um, and because Dave, and I think you kind of alluded to this, but we didn't talk about it, in addition to my sensory examination that he did to see if I was neurologically intact, he kind of started getting in bed with me. We were in Uh, the same room, obviously, in two single um, hospital beds. And he was determined to make me realize that he was going to love me and that he didn't see loving me uh, to be impossible because I didn't have legs and an arm. And he kind of would get in bed with me and kind of try and stimulate me to make sure that I knew that he was going to be interested in me. And I would just think, how can he do this? I mean, this I just don't look like myself anymore. And back to something that we didn't talk about earlier, um, when I looked down, everything was missing. But I became so focused on from my shoulders up that I kind of made people look at me and I would interact with them. I would 
especially use my eyes. I would look right up into their eyes and make them talk to me. I wouldn't let them look away. I would say, hi, how are you, to everybody that came into the room so that they couldn't ignore me. And he was doing the same thing with me, trying to make sure that I knew that he was still attracted to me and that he wasn't going to go away. Now, I still, to this day, don't know how what he looks at in his mind <laughs> when we're making love, but that's kind of the way he just made things work. It was, again, his way of taking control of things and saying he was going to make them be persist. But what you're referring to, the uh, the report card is what they called it. My family and his family, um, we were traveling with his family. My family flew over the night after the accident. And they would go back in the evening to the quarters where they were staying and they would have a couple of drinks and they would put on the music and dance. And they would grade me. And it was most of it um, along the line, hey, it went from A through Z, and they made up a word for each letter of the alphabet, and then they would give me a successful or outstanding or I failed, um, and it was hilarious. In fact, I think we put pictures of it in the book because it was what mm-hmm. got all of us. It was the black humor that we loved, all of us loved, and I to this day love it. In fact, I think physicians in general, many of us... Um, are accomplished at black humor because it's how you deal with all the bad things that happen. And again, that goes back to both of us having been or still being physicians where so many of the things that you see and deal with every day don't have a good outcome or are tragic. And you have to be able to present yourself to the patient's family or to your, be able to go home and, and put it out of your mind for the time being and a lot of the ways we do that is to make fun of things. And I love making fun of my disability. And in fact, in today's society where it's considered politically incorrect to uh, talk about a disability or jest about it, I love doing that. And I kind of let people do it with me because it breaks the ice. And if you can't do that, how are you going to relate to people? So um, we've we've tried to use the advantage of humor all the time. And it's... Uh, I think it's been a huge plus. Totally. Um, and I think that also it gives you perspective. You can laugh at yourself. And, you know, let's face it, we're all better off not knowing what our husbands are fantasizing about when we're making love. <laughs> exactly. It's really, it's really much better that we don't know that at all. <laughs> Who cares? Whatever works for them is fine. Exactly. Um, but but I, I, do, I do really... I think that um, what you're talking about is special um, because this idea of of having humor that, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry, you choose to laugh. It releases tension. Um, It's therapeutic. Uh, It's, you know, it's just good for the soul. It's chicken soup for the soul. Um, But you did touch on something that I find very, very uh, painful and that is the idea of invisibility, that with your disabilities, you know, at certain points when you weren't using your wheelchair and you weren't at eye level with people and they didn't know where to look, that they would simply walk by you or, or disallow your presence. Um, and that has to be really, really challenging. And you strike me as a person that would insist on it how easy or difficult was it to always be able to do that? 
<laughs> you know, I, um, I think having to start practicing that in the hospital gave me a feel that I, or how to do it. Um, of course, that was with family and friends. And when I would be, well, to be honest with you, um, it grew out of a real sense of fear. And the first time I was put in a wheelchair, and it was interesting, in Salzburg, um, the wheelchair they brought into my room was one of those high back, kind of cane-looking wheelchairs, the kind you see in old pictures, you know, look kind mm-hmm. of old-fashioned. And I was devastated. I had grown up in a medical family. My dad was a pathologist. My mom was a nurse. And I somehow in my mind had the perception that if you were in a wheelchair, you were mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm not supposed to say mentally retarded. This is not politically correct these days, but now I'm supposed to say <clears throat> mentally challenged. And I, for the first time, realized that that's how people were going to look at me. And I thought, I can't, I can't let them have that doubt or wonder. And so my, <clears throat> my way of, of making that clear from the first time they saw me or the first few seconds of interacting with people was to look straight at them and smile and say, hi, how are you? First of all, they knew that I could speak and that I was articulate and that they had to say something back. And I almost never, once I engaged somebody, had somebody turn around and not talk to me. Um, It kind of was carried on as time went on and, you know, you'd be going down the street and maybe I was in a wheelchair or maybe I was walking and I would walk with a cane and parents would come past me with children and they would kind of pull them and, you know, pull them away from me because kids always stare. Mm-hmm. And I loved talking to kids. I would look right down at them and i say, hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. Do you, are you, uh, and especially if I was sitting in my wheelchair, they would not realize I didn't have legs, but they could see I didn't have an arm because I never have used an arm prosthetic. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you, are you wondering where my arm is? And they would just, their eyes would get really big and they would, their mouth would start to open and their parents would stop. And I would say, I lost my arm in an accident. And then I would put my left hand on my shoulder and say, it doesn't hurt. And I'd wiggle it around. And sometimes if I had a short sleeve shirt on, I would pull it up a little bit. And I'd say, see, just like that. You want to touch it. <laughs> and by then, the parents are just kind of standing there. And, you know, by the time we got into this little conversation, sometimes the kids would touch it. Um, and as years went on, if I, if I had said I lost my arm, they would say, well, you know, well, can I help you find it? Because mm-hmm. they were so literal about having lost something. Right. So we would get to laugh about it. I mean, that was my goal. I wanted them to know that it was okay. And most parents in the long run were grateful that I had stopped and talked to them because it gave them the opportunity, obviously, to go home and talk about people that are disabled or something. So from me being originally thinking that if you were, if I was in a wheelchair, anybody who was in a wheelchair was, you know, not fully mentally capable, um, to being able to project myself as normal and it's the reason many people didn't know that I'm, how disabled I am because we started interacting and talking right away and everything else kind of goes out. Once you talk to somebody, they are occupied with your conversation and the rest of the things kind of go by the wayside. I had, um, uh, 
my sister, I'll try and figure, tell you this in a short form. My sister and her husband are windsurfers, and they were down in Mexico uh, probably five or six years ago. And they ran into somebody who said, oh, I lived in San Diego. And my sister said, oh, my sister lives there. And the long and short of it was we had known each other, this gentleman and I. He had been one of my radiology residents. And my, he said, well, how's Linda doing? And my sister said, she's fine. And, you know, come to find out, he had worked with me for four years, and he had no idea I didn't have legs. I'm like, you're a radiologist. You're supposed to be very observant. Yeah. And I had the same thing happen just this past year with a friend of mine who lives in Boston, and she was helping me with publicity for the book, and she had to finally admit, she said, Linda, I sat next to you for all those years. You taught me mammography. I didn't realize you didn't have legs because... I would walk in with my cane and I would sit down. They they unconsciously knew something wasn't right. They would pull the chair out for me. They'd hold it. They did the things unconsciously or subconsciously that I needed for help. But it was, we were always talking or we were getting ready to read films or we were consulting with somebody. So there was always something else that was paramount or was distracting them. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing how if you, again, it's that kind of take charge, take control, I guess, of the situation. And my plan was that, you know, you're going to react to me like a normal person. And, you know, over the years, people have said, oh, you should have done this. You should have gone public. You should have gone on Oprah. And I say, no, you know, I don't need to do that. My job or my wish as a person has been to in, in you influence people or impact people on a one-on-one basis, and that is who I talked to today or which little kid I talked to and who went home and said, oh, that was a normal lady. She was just in a wheelchair or she didn't have an arm, but she was still a normal lady. And that mm-hmm. really became my my wish as the years went on to show that, you know, I'm a normal person and that other disabled people are normal. And the real reason I wrote the book was to show that you could have a, quote, severely disabled parent and still have a family and be normal and do things that everybody else does. In fact, maybe even more than everybody else does, which is kind of what happened with us. So, yeah, yeah, so that's the long answer. Well, it's a great answer and it's a great um, mission, if you will. We have to pause for a commercial break, but interestingly, all the words, Linda, that you were really trying to avoid, you did successfully avoid inept, incapable, um, you know, not viable. And you gave people this experience of being able to forget, just forget about all of these, you know, injuries and to see you, to really see you. As a person, um, I will just give a tiny spoiler. Today is the birthday of Linda and Dave's daughter, Tiffany, and Sierra, who is their daughter, so Linda is a grandmother, plays a reenactment game on the floor of the accident. So this is the kind of perspective and levity that um, Linda K. Olson, author of Gone, has achieved in her world. When we come back, We'll talk to you, Linda, a little bit about going from being a radiologist to being an author. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa. 
play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. In your own words, Linda, we're here with No Leg Grandma, and that's just an amazing um, way of of levity with the situation because we were just talking about Sarah during the break, your granddaughter who's had her tonsils removed, no picnic there, um, especially during Zoom. And you're you're away from your usual home. You're up in Davis with your daughter, Tiffany, whose birthday it is today. I um, commend you on this book. I, I, read, um, I read many memoirs. Yours is quite uh, immediate. And, um, of course, I think it helps very much that you can give the dimension of both being a doctor and also being a woman. It did, you did acknowledge um, in the acknowledgments that writing this book, um, you know, as many of us have writer's circles and feedback, that there was a point where your positivity became something of a limitation in the sense that some of your beta readers ask you to go inside the emotions more, go inside the, 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 the feelings of these scenes and situations of relearning and relearning yourself. Um, did you learn more about yourself through that experience of, of writing the book? Um, I did. And like you said, I, I tend to have a happy-go-lucky outlook on life and the things I chose to write about I chose in fact I, I didn't start by writing a book I started just kind of writing about experiences like camping or the kids being born and I remembered the positive things so the things I chose to write about were things I felt good about um, and I probably was not writing about the painful things but on the other hand, the way my mind works is I don't remember the bad things very well. It's, I guess like giving birth. You don't remember it, otherwise you wouldn't have any more kids. So <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think what I would go home after I'd read you know, my writing group and they, I would take notes of what they told me and they would just say, you've got to show the emotion more. And I would go back and I would try and pull it out, but what I discovered helped me the most, I would go home and I would hand the piece that I'd written to Dave and I'd say, tell me what you think. And he would read it and he would always sit over on the couch and he would cry. Tears would just kind of, I mean, he wasn't crying, you know, sobbing, but 
the tears would start coming down on his cheeks. And I get to the point, I'd say, Dave, I'm not going to let you read these things if you just keep crying every time I give you something. And he'd say, they're not, you know, they're not sad tears. A lot of them are just, he says, I just remember so much. And we discovered that his memory was much more vivid than mine was. And inevitably, after he'd read something like this, I'd find him over at his computer in the next few hours. And he would sit there transfixed for maybe two or three hours. And he would just type. And when you would look at what he had typed, it was single space, no paragraphs. It was just, you know, run-on sentences almost of his reaction or his memory. And what eventually happened was my book groups always said, oh, you're writing a book about yourself. I said, no, you guys don't understand. This is a love story. This is what Dave and I did together. And eventually I started taking in some of his pieces and I would read them out loud. And his were so different than mine. They were so visceral. They were so gut-wrenching. Mm-hmm. that they all realized that, you know, let's put part of his pieces in there. Um, you know, we shortened them, and there's four of them that are scattered through the book. Mm-hmm. But when you read them, you get you can just see this is such a different person, and such a person who, to this day, um, I think he thinks about the accident every day. I mean, he, he mm-hmm. still feels that something was taken from him, and I don't think about it. It's just, you know, it's done, it's gone. But it gave the book such a bigger dimension because his his reactions are in there that uh, I just I felt like it started bringing it together as a family too so yeah mm-hmm. um, so I did I learned that I I needed to I needed to pull more out of myself and did it change me no because I don't want to I don't want to be morose I don't want to think about what I don't have um, but it did allow me to go back and think about it but not change <laughs> right well, it is an exercise in survivorship, I think, to to put aside. It's amazing how the psyche, psyche can do that. Um, I read Dave's parts, um, and honestly, I had to reach for my Kleenex each time. I'm like, uh-oh, Dave is back. This is going to be, Good. you know, a three-hanky <laughs> experience. And, you know, it, it has to do with his very... Um, visceral, as you say, and, and he is emotional. He's very, uh, and at times volatile. You've had mm-hmm. um, experiences with Dave that are described in the book where, you know, he was not able to cope with the fact that you, unthinkably as a radiologist, I think very orderly people are a messy person and you kind of like a, a proper mess to, to, you You know where everything is, but you know, he doesn't know how to manage it. Um you know, but he gets up in the nighttime and, and he talks about, I'm not going to describe this too closely because I won't make it through. Um, but, you know, he, he talks about putting those babies next to him, you know, one at a time, obviously, Tiffany first and then Brian, when he was doing the nighttime feedings um, and just what that was like and how he would linger there. Um, and again, not to be Pollyanna, but what a gift for a father to have those incredibly bonding experiences that weren't necessarily palmed off, um, sorry for the pun, to you all the time, that you you actually had a team, as you say, not only in the writing experience, because Tiffany contributed a really great prologue, and Brian, your son, um, created the epilogue, which, again, solidified the whole book for me. You talk about your fears, what they 
the cliff that you were looking at, you you were, you know, because you do divulge yourself, Linda, you, you were contemplating, quote, losing life as I knew it, losing my husband, losing my looks, my career, my identity. This is when you were going home, you were studying, you were back in your mm. studies and going back on weekends with Dave, um, which created some sense of normalcy, some sense of security. And I wondered if through all of this, creating a family, creating the book, that sense of security has returned to your life. <laughs> uh, it, it has. And I guess putting everything together and making the book, making it be a book, um, kind of it, it's the wrapping on our lives. And I, I had no intention of writing a book. Uh, I felt like there was no need until... Well, actually, what I I should tell you about the prologue and the epilogue because they were not mm-hmm. written for the book. They happened to be things the kids had done uh, before I started, or you know, unrelated to the book. Tiffany took an online class at UCLA, and this was a few years after she graduated from college. And she wrote this story about me for the class. And when I read it, I thought, Oh my God. This, it's time. It's time to write a book because here's what she's saying about her mom. And she was 30 years old when she wrote it. And so that's what prompted me. And I, as I went on with the book, I thought that's the beginning of the book. You know, of course, you can't keep a surprise that I lost my legs and my arm because it's on the front of the book. So once I realized I had this beautiful piece to start with, I thought I got to have something from Brian. And I went to, you know, you keep files on your kids or things that they've done. And he had applied for medical school. Three years after he graduated from college, he realized maybe he should have done something different other than geology. And this was his personal statement for his medical school application. And I had printed it out, and I would pull it out of the file, and probably three or four times a year, I reread that piece because he was so articulate in what, he felt about his dad in particular and what he had learned from his dad. And I wish I had it in front of me here. About, you know, what I his have dad it. Don't had worry. taught him there. Do you have it? Of course. I'm just, yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, read it because it, it's an amazing piece that he wrote. And I thought, if I put what, these pieces at the beginning and the end of the book, and I've got Dave in the middle, I've accomplished what I set out to do. And that was to show people that that you can have a family and that, you can look back at it. You know, most books that are written about trauma, memoirs, they're written about the first three or four years. And they're written about the trauma, the tragedy, and the survival and the struggle. And I couldn't find anything that showed how you could make everything turn out okay or that it could turn out okay. And this, I thought, did it. And so when I could put the kids pieces there it was it was done and then it was time to have a book so that's where we did it. <laughs> well when you ask the question why this book now that's a that's a perfect answer um, I'm going to give you just a little flavor because we have just a couple minutes left until closing but Dave um, said um, because Dave is the husband and um, here's his words of wisdom there's no difference between being disabled and being a dinosaur <laughs> I thought this was also profound. Um, And you say, if T-Rexes with their itty-bitty arms and Triceratops with no arms at all could be moms, why couldn't I? 
I mean, this really yeah. works for me, and I, I think it illustrates what you're talking about. But yes, I had highlighted and and starred and taken with me uh, Brian's epitaph, and it, it says, My dad has shown me that a person is more than her body parts, that everyone is a character worth appreciating, that more than what that more exists than what is on the surface. I mean, I ask you, for a son, for a man, um, for anyone gazing at a woman, what could be more wonderful um, and eye-opening than that? I um, just really commend you and your family, uh, and I really appreciate so much that you've been with us, Linda. Um, You've succeeded in giving us a book that looked at the positives, didn't dwell on the negatives. Um, You had moments where, you know, your mother even asked you, what would you do if, you know, you can't be pregnant because Dave might leave you. I mean, really, we've come a long way. You've you've come a long way. Um, And if you could sum up your philosophy, oh, well, I just have to get over it and make it work. That was one part I thought to myself, is that sort of close, do you think, Linda, as a parting parting word for our audience? Oh, I do. I think, and especially as we've lived, all of us have lived through COVID this past year. I think we've all, uh, you haven't lost your legs and your arms, but you've lost so much. And I think all of us have just kind of had to dig deep and we've had to say, let's do it. If we, if we take control of our lives, we can, it may not look the way we planned and it's not what we wanted it to be, but we can still be happy and find joy in it. And we're going to do everything, use our energy to be that. And that's where I think most of us have gone this year, at least I hope. And I hope my book helps people realize that that can happen. So that would be my message. It has for me, and it's made me realize a lot of things, uh, including gratitude and not whining and getting on with it. Um, I do want people to know that there is a website, Linda K. Olson, Facebook, author Linda K. Olson, and Instagram. You can find her there. I hope you'll come back with us again, Linda. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being with us on this subject and on your next subject, which is getting out and about with Parkinson's disease. Thanks to our <laughs> Thank thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and see one another as more than the sum of our parts. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.